0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, everyone. My name is Blake Simmons, and I'm the Chief Science and Technology Officer at the Joint Bioenergy Institute, also known as JBAY. And this is my second talk in the iBiology series on biofuels. And the particular topic of this talk is how we developed an integrated approach to convert biomass into aviation biofuels at JBAY. The primary motivation for us doing this work is concerns around climate change and the role that greenhouse gas emissions associated with the transportation sector play in climate change. As shown in this movie, taken of several decades of global surface temperatures, you can see that we're warming the planet. And one of the primary reasons for this effect is burning these transportation fuels derived from petroleum. Uh, We take those petroleum fuels out of the ground. We convert them, and then we burn them in a variety of different engines, and the carbon they emit goes straight up into the atmosphere. One of the primary reasons that we're very interested in biomass as an alternative to fossil fuels is that the carbon they emit goes into the next wave of the plants that are grown as a source of the biofuels. And we call that closing the carbon balance around the transportation sector. And, in fact, some elements, uh, and some plants in particular, can result in an overall increase in sequestering carbon more so than we emit, so you'd have a carbon-negative overall balance on the carbon cycle for the planet, meaning that we'd gradually reduce the amount of carbon that's going into the atmosphere and is present in the atmosphere over time. In terms of the challenges that we face in making this a reality, uh, there are several, as you can see. We have a lack of scalable and sustainable bioenergy crops... Uh, There are a variety of different uh, types of feedstocks that are being considered, like switchgrass, like sorghum, like woody biomass residuals, and agricultural residues. But we do not have a really robust portfolio of these crops that are available today and ready for conversion into these biofuels. In addition to the feedstock problem, we have difficulty in deconstructing the biomass into targeted intermediates that can be easily upgraded into those biofuels and bioproducts. One of the primary reasons for that is a lack of a robust pretreatment technology that can operate on a wide range of single or mixed feedstocks and efficiently break them down and make them accessible for the enzymes that finally generate the intermediates that we need. The enzymes that we need are also too expensive right now. Uh, They typically generate between 30 cents to a dollar per gallon of biofuel produced. And so, that is an increasingly uh, important aspect of the work that needs to be improved upon in order to make the overall process more affordable and scalable. And finally, uh, there's been a lack of efficient and affordable microbial routes to drop-in biofuels and bioproducts, although I am going to be talking about one that holds great promise in the production of an aviation biofuel that is ready for prime time. In terms of the recalcitrance of the the plants themselves, um, plants are available around the world... You see them every day. They are the trees. They are the grasses. They are the... the agricultural residues that we generate. There's also uh, carbon in municipal solid waste that we want to access and harness. But in terms of the plant cell wall itself, the main reason why it's so hard to break down is that it is a highly coordinated and hierarchical structure that is composed of three major components. Hemicellulose, cellulose, and lignin. The hemicellulose and cellulose are polymers derived... uh, found in nature that are derived from sugars. And so, the primary goal of our work is to take those polymer sugars and liberate them in the form that microbes can easily take up and convert into biofuels. Lignin is commonly associated with the phrase, you're anti-biofuel. It is composed of aromatic compounds assembled into a very complex macromolecular polymer and are very, very hard to break down using existing techniques. Uh, I will be highlighting an approach that we developed at the Joint Bioenergy Institute that we think holds singular promise in terms of uh, depolymerizing all three of these major plant cell wall components into intermediates that are very readily up, uh, taken up by organisms and converted into biofuels and bioproducts. Here's our approach to uh, biofuels at JBay. We have a feedstock team that is looking at engineering sorghum, switchgrass, and poplar that are optimized for deconstruction into targeted intermediates. Uh, We have a deconstruction team that is taking those plants as inputs and developing techniques that are primarily derived on ionic liquids, which are a novel class of molten salts that I've been spending a great deal of time talking about and also developing the enzymes and microbes that can break down the lignin into these target intermediates that we can then break down... Uh, break, upconvert into fuels and products. Once we have these intermediates derived from those original polymers, we want to develop the microbes and targets that we have selected for production. Uh, the microbes that we're using are a variety of different classes. Um, I'll be talking about one in particular, toriloides. But a lot of the organisms that we're looking at at J-Bay have the ability to take up the lignin and the sugars, and convert those into biofuels and bioproducts simultaneously. And what that allows us to do is come up with a process that is much more efficient overall, because there are a smaller number of steps in going from a feedstock to a fuel. One... another way to view this, and there are several, but one that I find particularly effective, is considering the different innate properties of the plants, the deconstruction process, and the microbes on top of each other kind of like a three-dimensional layout that you're looking down on top of. Um, this image over on the left shows you basically the current state, where you have the different composition profiles, be it a, a C5 sugar like xylose, a C6 sugar like glucose. Uh, you have the different types of lignin that are commonly found in the plants. And you can see that most plants are going to follow a proscribed compositional balance of the different elements within the plant cell walls. And that's because... They are evolved to have that natural predisposition to that plant cell wall composition. Most of the deconstruction techniques that we use today are derived from the pulp and paper industry. And they are really, really good at liberating cellulose, but not very good at liberating anything else. And so you can see that if you take the plant cell wall compositional profile and overlay that on the deconstruction efficiency profile, you have a very narrow range of overlap between the two. To make matters worse, if you take a look at the conversion microbe, here in blue, uh, typical microbes that are available today and common in industry really only like to consume glucose. And that's the monomer that is derived from cellulose. And so, if you overlay the plant cell wall composition on top of the deconstruction efficiency profile and then underlay it with the microbial efficiency, that is the area here in orange that is a very narrow range of overlap. And it basically is the equivalent of threading the eye of a needle with an elephant in terms of trying to get to where you want to be and maximize the overall carbon efficiency. Because right now, we aren't doing so well in carbon efficiency. We may be doing a lot of great things in terms of overall tighter rate and yield of that particular pathway off of that particular sugar, but that's not where you want to be. You want to take all the carbon that's in the plants and dump it into your deconstruction process, generate intermediates that can then all be consumed by the microbe and converted into biofuels and bioproducts. And that's what success looks like when you do it right. And still, this is hypothetical. Uh, No one in the world has really attained this this success overall and demonstrated it. But the talk I'm giving today highlights some significant progress in terms of maximizing that overlap and increasing the carbon efficiency of the overall process as you go from a feedstock to a fuel. The ideal feedstock uh, would be one that has a lot of glucose and maybe a little less hemicellulose. It would be one that is grown at high acreage... uh, high tonnage per acre, uh, requires low water inputs, requires no fertilizer, and has a lignin that is tailored for breakdown into targeted intermediates, uh, very efficient process conditions. Currently, that plant does not exist. And so, that is why the feedstocks team at J-Bay is busily engineering a variety of different feedstocks primarily sorghum, switchgrass, and poplar, and demonstrating what can be done in altering the plant cell wall composition to make it the ideal feedstock. In terms of the ideal deconstruction process, what you want is something that can operate on a wide range of mixed and single feedstocks. Uh, Another way to view that is to call it a feedstock agnostic process and that you can deploy this technology anywhere in the world, operating on a wide range of feedstocks, and you're still liberating a high yield of the intermediates from all the carbon polymers that are present initially in the plant. Overall, we'd like to achieve a net efficiency uh, of about 90% yields of all the carbon intermediates that are found in the plant cell wall. And more importantly, when we generate those intermediates, they are in a form that is easily consumed by the microbe, and that there are no inhibitors or no toxic compounds that are released as a result of this deconstruction process that impair the performance of the microbe in its job of converting those intermediates into biofuels and bioproducts. Also, it has to be very affordable and scalable. Biofuels are basically a dirt-to-dirt value proposition. You want to be able to take something that you grew out of the ground and convert it very cheaply and readily into something that you can sell at the pump. If you're transforming dirt into gold, that's a great thing. and something that we always aspire to do at JBay. But a lot of the biofuels industry has suffered from a gold-to-dirt transition, where you're taking really high-performing but very expensive technologies to operate and to purchase, and then you're generating a commodity fuel as, as a product that doesn't, you know, balance the economic scales. And so it, it's a... it's a multi-tiered puzzle that we're trying to figure out and build. One... Technology that we view as uniquely qualified to handle this are ionic liquids. They are a unique pretreatment solvent that was uh, basically discovered at the beginning of the 2000s. Ionic liquids are a class of molten salts. uh, Sodium chloride. has an anion uh, chloride and a cation, sodium. Uh, And if you heat it up to 700 degrees C, it will flow like a liquid. Unfortunately, if you throw a poplar tree into a 700 degrees C reactor, you're not going to have anything left at the end of the day to convert into a biofuel. So, what we typically work with are combinations of cations and anions that form molten salts at room temperature. And by selecting the cation and the anion very carefully, we can wreak havoc with the plant cell wall. Uh, the ions... the ionic liquids alter the solution conditions as well. Just when you add... just like when you add a salt into a glass of water, it has a a very definitive impact on the solution conditions. One of those is pH. Uh, Depending on the N and the cation, you can transform a solution from near neutral to very acidic or very basic conditions. You can adjust the ionic strength based on not only the type of the ionic liquid that you add to the water, but also the amount that you add. And finally, the water activity, the potential of that solution to interact with biomass and break it down will vary greatly depending on the anion and the cation that you select. And so, you know, there's this ternary fit of all these different properties that we view as a way to tailor the solution conditions uniquely in a way that can maximize the deconstruction efficiency on the plant cell wall. And so, there are literally millions of different combinations of anions and cations that are available to form these solutions. But what we are really concerned about is can we find an anion and a cation that, when combined, not only effectively pre-treat the plant cell wall, but do so in a fashion that is not toxic to the microbes and enzymes that are downstream. And, in fact, we want the salt itself to be biocompatible with those microbes and enzymes as well. And we call that a biocompatible process that, if realized, could have significant economic and environmental impact. Now, some of the ionic liquids that we've already demonstrated with at JV have have the ability to have a significant impact on the plant cell walls, and and a wide range of those plant cell walls. I'm going to be showing you movies of switchgrass and eucalyptus in the presence of these ionic liquids, taken at about 120 degrees C. And these are time-lapse movies taken over three hours. And you can see that these ionic liquids basically melt the plant cell walls of both grasses and woods very effectively. And what that means is that you basically overcome the recalcitrance of these plant cell walls, and now you have these polymers in a very easily accessible form to liberate the monomers from them. This is seen by this plot here that compares uh, some of the typical pretreatment steps, one using ammonia, one using a dilute acid, one that's just looking at enzyme efficiency on amorphous cellulose, And then, finally, the ionic liquid process itself. You can see, the ionic... after ionic liquid pretreatment, uh, you generate higher yields of sugars as compared to any other of these types of uh, pretreatments and substrates. And so, what we typically want to achieve is about 90 to 95% yields of sugars in as little as 72 hours of total process time. And that would make the overall process much more affordable and scalable than is currently, and something that we feel has a, a, a significant impact and promise. And over ten years that we've been working on this, and we've started on a wide range of different technology embodiments and different elements of it, but one that we've settled upon and are very excited about is this one-pot process configuration. Uh, When we first wrote the proposal for JBAY, it was a dream of mine that we could have just one tank sitting there in an open field that he could take a bushel of corn stover or a poplar tree or some uh, switchgrass or any blend of peat feedstocks, and he basically throw it into the reactor, shut the lid, and hit go. You come back in 72 hours later and you fill up your tractor or your truck or your car or your plane, depending on what field you're in. Uh, and that would be what I would call an ideal situation from an engineering embodiment. One pot, one process, robust applicable across a wide range of feedstocks, and affordable and maximizing your greenhouse gas emission reduction. Well, that was a dream when we started back in 2007. And uh, the rest of the talk is going to be primarily focused on a demonstration of just that thing. How do, and this is a, a, you know, kind of an overall configuration schematic, if you will. Um, it basically consists of three steps. Step one is you take the biomass and put it in the presence of an ionic liquid in water and elevate the temperature to anywhere to 120 to 160 degrees C. Um, You typically run it for about three hours, and you break down the biomass very effectively using that process. Step two is you lower the temperature and add enzymes that will then break up those polymeric substrates of hemicellulose, cellulose, and lignin into monomers. And then step three is you decrease the temperature further. Uh, You add an organism that can access all the carbon that is generated from the hemicellulose, the cellulose, and the lignin, and then convert that into biofuels and bioproducts, and then you're off to separate your product and put it in a tank. And so, this is the overall cartoon schematic of it. Um, It looks really promising and compelling and exciting, but it really depends on finding a biocompatible ionic liquid that is not toxic to the enzymes and the microbes that we use in steps 2 and 3. Now, what about the ideal conversion host? So, we've already talked about, you know, some of the attributes of it, but uh, typically what you want is something that is... I would call a garbage scowl, something that can take cellulose, xylose, and the lignins and convert them efficiently into a wide range of biofuels and bioproducts, and something that can tolerate a wide range of feedstocks and different process conditions no matter what. Um, that is much more easily said than done. Typically... Uh, in microbial metabolism, you can find an organism that is uh, really great at consuming one or two of these substrates, but there are very few that are very good at uh, tolerating all three. On top of that, we want to find an organism that is very efficient and, and can tolerate the presence of those ion... Ionic liquids that we've used in the deconstruction process. And so we have a multi-tiered uh, sensitivity plot that we wanted to tease out and, and use that and what success looks like as determining screens for identifying those ideal conversion hosts. So, step one, let's screen ionic liquids for biocompatibility. And as I said, there are millions of these different ionic liquids uh, that are... that are known and available. We didn't have time to screen all, you know, millions of those. So, we started off with looking at hundreds. And we took the different ionic liquids... and put them in a variety of different growth formats and a variety of different organisms, and we screen for what combination of organism and ionic liquid could grow. And this is a plot that's showing the toxicity screen of 15 different ionic liquids of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is basically otherwise known as baker's yeast, and looking at different IL concentrations of all of these different ionic liquids. Um, As is typical with stoplight readouts, green means good, yellow means not so good, and red means really not good in terms of the overall viability of the organism in the presence of these different ionic liquids. And one ionic liquid in particular showed significant promise. That is cholinium lysinate. Uh, And that is a a very interesting ionic liquid. Lysine is an amino acid. It can be sourced renewably. Choline can also be derived from renewable sources. Uh, And it had a particular ability to be tolerated by organisms. In fact, some organisms ate the choline or the lysine. Uh, we don't necessarily want that, but we were very excited to find out that we had an ionic liquid that appeared to be very biocompatible. This is a different way to plot that data that shows the toxicity of the ionic liquids on a... on a relative scale, which is red, yellow, green, again, as a function of pH. pH is a very important parameter for physiology, both for microbes and for... for us in the environment. Um, And so, the industry-relevant IL characteristic is that we want it to be near neutral, because that's where uh, a lot of biology happens. Um, The cholinium lysinate, the one drawback it has is that it, in solution, forms a very basic solution. So, what we need to do is, after pretreatment, we would need to lower the pH by adding something to it to neutralize the the basicity. Uh, And it can be adjusted by things like adding gaseous carbon dioxide or adding an acid to the system to neutralize it. But it is not a a Herculean leap to adjust the pH from where we need it to be effective for pretreatment down to where we need it to be for the microbes. And then we want to look and see, okay, what host could be omnivorous? So, as I mentioned, a lot of biology consumes sugars. So, our approach in looking for one that could consume sugars and lignin is to screen for those that grew on lignin. Uh, We took uh, lignin-rich soil uh, samples. We took lignin-rich processes from ionic liquid uh, technology. And we basically screened hundreds of different organisms to see what could grow on that lignin. And once we had a positive hit on what could grow, then we sliced and diced it using modern genomics and proteomics to try and understand the metabolism of it, try and create a metabolic map of it, and try to see if it was genetically tractable for engineering. And one of the hosts that we came upon was Rhodosporidium toruloides. It is an oleaginous yeast. Um, it typically generates carotenoids. The, those are the things that make oranges... Uh, carrots orange. Uh, and you can see a very carrot-like profile down here of that organism grown on a plate. Um, and it can accumulate lipids, and that's what those orange droplets are. And taken by light microscope here, you can see the lipid droplets in solution. Um, it can sequester a lot of the carbon that comes through that organism to the amount of 70% of the dry cell weight. Those lipids, by themselves, are an interesting class of biofuels, but it's not what we were looking for. What we are looking for is, can we uh, take the native metabolism of that organism and manipulate it and engineer it so that it would produce a biofuel that we really cared about? One particular class of compounds that we were very interested in is an aviation bio precursor called bisabolene, And so, that is a, a variant of a terpene pathway that we engineered into this organism, and it appears that this organism could take both monomers from sugars and monomers from lignin and convert them efficiently into that bisabolene aviation biofuel precursor. And so, here is the goal, or, or what, what our starting point was in terms of a one-pot conversion system, that we would take biomass... We would do pretreatment treatment securification. We would liberate those monomers. And then we add the organism of rotosperdentoryloides and put it into the fermentation system. And here is that uh, that, uh, bisavillene advanced aviation biofuel I was talking about. There is a lot of properties that go into the consideration of why we targeted this. But one thing that's particularly compelling to note is that we can take that bisavillene, we hydrotreat it to make it bisavillene, and then that's ready to go into both a diesel fuel substitute and an aviation biofuel blend stock. Um, this is a, a plot showing... it's a very busy plot. Um, I'll, I'll... I'll walk through it very quickly. But here is the proof that the organism can grow on the... the sugars by themselves, and then also a lignin-derived intermediate cumerate. And then, most importantly, when we put them all together, the organism can access all three carbon sources very efficiently with no big lag time between the sugar or the lignin-derived intermediate. So, what this means is that when the organism sees these complex carbon substrates, in that reactor tank, it will draw them in and convert them into bisaboline, no matter what. And so, we have a very efficient process in terms of uptake and overall efficiency. And so, in terms of putting it all together, um, first, we want to take a look at something simple. We took the biomass-free treatment and combined it with enzymatic hydrolysis and fermentation. Uh, we then put an ethanol pathway into that organism to demonstrate if it was viable. And the... and the good news is it was very viable we achieved yields of about 89% of ethanol from poplar and about 96% from uh, switchgrass. And then, when we added the bisabolene pathway into it, we then started scaling it up to see how far we could take it in terms of scale. And so, this is a, a very representational series of images that we took uh, in partnership with the Advanced Biofuels uh, a Process Demonstration Unit at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Here is the biomass. Uh, and we pass it through a 2-millimeter screen. We add it with the colonium lysinate. And also important to note that this isn't 100% pure cholinium lysinate. This is a 10% solution of cholinium lysinate in water that's acting on biomass through this process. We then start mixing it before pretreatment and then add it into the pretreatment reactor. After pretreatment, we add enzymes. Uh, And and you can see here it's a very taffy-like substance that is... that is highly viscous. And then after scarification, it turns in... it liquefies. And then, after it turns into that liquid state, we add the organism, and then we're off and running for the fermentation. Here are some before and after images and a movie uh, of the process. Here is the corn stover after a pretreatment of colonium Colunium And this particular pretreatment was at 140 degrees C for three hours. And then, uh, when we do the one-pot fermentation and, and hydrolysis... Uh, this is what it looks like. So, you can see, it's a much more liquefied state, easy to pump around, and easy to purify a biofuel from. Um, here is the process yields at 20 liter scale. This is the highest um, scale in terms of volume that we have taken this process. Um, the only addition that we had here was for ammonium sulfate after pretreatment, and that was just to serve as a nitrogen source for the organism. Um, what we also found is that this organism is great at eating both lactate and acetate that is generated in the pretreatment process. So, we're, again, demonstrating the ability for this organism not only to eat sugar, not only to eat lignin-derived intermediates, but also some of the uh, organic acids and other substrates that are generated during the deconstruction process. And at the end of the day, what we have is uh, production tires of about 2.2 to 2.5 grams per liter of bisaviline. Now at the time, was an all-time record for us. Uh, we've since boosted that up to even greater than 3 grams per liter. And so, uh, it's producing a lot of biofuel uh, in, in a very specific and desired way. And over here, you can see on the white plot over here, this is the initial concentration profiles of the sugars uh, that are present and the cumarate that's present. And you can see those are both going to zero very rapidly, and the organism continues to produce bisabolene after consuming all of those substrates. So, some of the key findings from this... the scale-up is a success, uh, which is never a guaranteed outcome. In um, molecular biology and in industrial biotechnology, there are a couple of phrases that haunt you. One of them is, something funny happened on the way to the fermenter. Uh, we can have something that works great at the bench scale, but once you start scaling it up, things go south very quickly. So, it's great to see that not only was the scale-up a success, but actually the besabling productivity improved as a function of scale which is something you don't encounter a lot. Um, we had ammonium sulfate that we added to the system that improved performance. Uh, it's also interesting to note that bisaboline production occurs after the sugars are consumed, which means there's a residual lag in metabolism as you go through the carbon flux uh, on the way from the starting point to the end point. And then, also, in terms of the sequential nature of it, the glucose acetate are consumed first over the xylose, and then ultimately the lactic acid. So, what does this mean to the public? It's great in terms of science that we're able to demonstrate this, but what are the economics of it and how soon can we see this in a, or fly this in, in a plane? Um, so, here's an example of the impact of the economics. Um, it gives you the different scenarios that we've developed over JBay. The base case here is a corn stover to ethanol base case uh, based on a dilute acid process. And you can see we've made significant inroads uh, in terms of the overall process efficiency and the cost. This is the case for the one-pot configuration, and we're on a track now to get it down to below the base case for cellulosic ethanol using the conventional process that's available on the market. In terms of the life cycle, uh, what's important to note is that uh, the one-pot process has a significant reduction in greenhouse gas emissions relative to the gasoline baseline. And so, this shows that it's not only affordable, but it's also sustainable. And that we could create an aviation biofuel that is not only affordable, but it also meets a lot of the greenhouse gas emission restrictions as associated with current policies, especially around aviation biofuels. So, in summary, um, you know, we talked about ionic liquids. We termed the biocompatible ionic liquids as bionic liquids, kind of an homage to the bionic man and woman, um, that are derived from choline and amino acids, enable this process consolidation into a one-pot configuration... This one pot process is a more affordable and sustainable one as compared to typical conventional multi stage processes. And the next step for this work is to develop an IL process that does not require a pH adjustment in between pretreatment, securification, and fermentation. With that, I'd like to thank you uh, for your time and attention. I'd also like to thank Team JBay for all the work that they've done in making these projects a success. And I'd also like to thank the Department of Energy for funding. Thanks and have a great day. Visit us at ibiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.